from Freie Universität Berlin, I'm Jonas Benz, and this is the Affect and Colonialism podcast. It is more and more evident that the world faces an urgent environmental crisis. Global economies, based on colonial imaginaries of progress through resource extraction, have severely damaged the planet. But not everybody is equally affected. The ecological catastrophe further marginalizes people along racial lines. Today, we talk with anthropologist Tamar Blickstein about the colonial effects of environmental racism. Tamar, welcome. Hi, Jonas. Tamar, environmental racism, what does that term mean? What does it denote? Um, well, it's actually quite a simple term. I think it, it refers to the ways that um, environmental destruction, environmental crises um, un are unequally distributed along racial or racialized lines. Can you, can you explain uh, with some examples how that works? Yeah, so um, I, since I come from the U.S., there are some uh, local examples that I can give, but this is also something that happens on a global scale, of course. Um, and so, for example, there are statistics that that we've uh, that we have in the U.S. that show that um, black people are more likely to suffer from diseases related to toxicity, um, and this is already controlling for income level. So this is not about income inequality. This is really a racialized difference. If you're white, actually, even with a slightly lower income than a black person, you're still more likely to um, not be faced with this kind of toxic inequality. And, you know, there are a number of reasons for this. Uh, um, just to name a few, one of them is, for example, impunity. When there are factories that are producing a lot of pollution or a lot of toxicity, um, they're more likely to get away with breaking the law, having um, paying a fine that they calculate is, uh, is in their cost and benefit analysis is, is uh, worth it, and they're less likely to be held accountable. There are some examples that have made it to the news, like, like Flint, Michigan, but then there are just the everyday, uh, the everyday things that do not make it to the news. And then also, you know, environmental refugees are more likely to be of racialized populations, and this is including even within the country like the U.S., not to mention on a global scale. Um, so more dangerous property locations, um, uh, worse infrastructure to protect against extreme flooding or, or fires, wildfires that are, as we know, um, increasing drastically. These are also things we hear in the news, but um, people of color are uh, more vulnerable to the effects of these environmental disasters. So the existence of environmental racism begs the question if there is a more fundamental relationship between the economies that um, produce this environmental degradation and um, the heritage of colonialism. So where do you see the connection between environmental destruction and colonialism? One way of looking at it is through uh, the lens of what could be called racial capitalism. And there are many ways to understand that, but basically the emergence of the contemporary capitalist system arose alongside European institutions of 
colonialism and slavery. And you could say that there are certain people who were regarded as more disposable within this system than others. This is also um, an issue that has been raised within the Black Lives Matter movement, because there are some bodies that are deemed to matter less than others. It's not only a question of police brutality, but also of, uh, you know, because environmental racism does kill. It's, it's, not, um, it's, it's not just a discomfort. It actually uh, leads to higher mortality rates amongst communities of color. It is um, puzzling in a way that the global economy, based on these colonial logics of extracting resources from the global south um, for the benefit of the global north and the vast negative effects this has on the environment are still being maintained on a global scale although these um, negative effects become more and more visible not only for racially marginalized people but more and more for everybody why is that what's the reason for the endurance of these economic models Maybe an example from my own research could be helpful here. I have lately been looking into processes of deforestation in South America, and I've been looking at a site that, that's less likely to be studied by research, even though it's a, it's a huge deforestation hotspot. It's called the, the Gran Chaco, so northern Argentina, eastern Bolivia, southern Paraguay. And similarly to the Amazon, rates of deforestation there are really, really high. Uh, the velocity increases every year, and during COVID, the rates have increased. We just have new um, new satellite data that's going to be published showing that what's happened in the Amazon, that, this, that the rates of deforestation have increased during COVID, is also happening in the Chaco um, at, at very, very high rates and, and really slips under the radar of the international community. This is driven by, by agribusiness expansion, mainly cattle ranching and soy fields, Genetically modified soybeans now cover half of arable land in Argentina. This land mostly overlaps with areas that were considered to be national territories right after the foundation of Argentina as a nation state. And what that means is that these were these were places that before the creation of the state of Argentina were, were more or less reigned by militarily autonomous indigenous people. So I don't think that's a coincidence. We, we already see a kind of colonial geography, a persistent colonial geography at work here. So what happens in a settler colonial project, it's, there's often an agricultural frontier. And if you look at what's happening today with the agricultural frontiers, you really can see the roots in a settler colonial project. So what happened is that Argentina have this settler colonial nation-building project, just like countries in North America. And so they recruited white European immigrants to go and settle and farm. And I've talked to a number of, of rural people who were part of the Argentine, what used to be the Cotton Belt area in this Chaco region. Their cotton economy has collapsed and has largely been replaced by um, big agribusiness. If they've held on to any land title, they've uh, they rent it out to these big conglomerates. And they are being intoxicated by high levels of uh, glyphosate, among other agrochemicals, that seep into their water and into their soil that um, they know is... Uh, they have a very strong affective attachment to the soil, and they're very much aware that soy is killing the soil. 
So a question would arise as to why if there if more people are being born with deformities, if their food systems are becoming more insecure, if there are rising rates of autoimmune disease, just to name a few of the smaller problems even, why aren't they protesting this? And one of the things I noticed when I when I talked to these people who again are are kind of like a petit bourgeoisie they're, they're you might consider them middle class within a global south context, but they would be considered peasants from a global north perspective. Um, but they were uh, plantation owners who, in a very racialized um, plantation economy. And so why are they accepting this, this fate? And when I talk to them, they, it seems to me they're so affectively invested, even more in this time of insecurity and, and constant um, economic crisis that they've been facing for the last few decades, they are really still very effectively invested in notions of, of agriculture as, as a harbinger of progress and modernity and civilization. They, they speak with intense emotion about how their ancestors came and uh, when, here, when there was nothing, it was an empty desert, they cultivated it, they created progress, and they're in a way proud that Argentina has given a home to these grand capitalist projects. At the same time, you, you notice through an affective lens that they're conflicted because some of them um, are worried about rising rates of birth deformities. And I just want to mention that this we're talking about people who have some kind of means, who are kind of middle class. Of course, the people who are most directly affected by glyphosate intoxication are going to be indigenous people. They're, they're much more likely to have accidents where toxic spray is uh, reaches people's homes and even schoolyards than in the white communities. But still, even the white people are also affected by this. Affect is actually a very, I think, important tool, an analytical tool for understanding the perpetuation of an environmental crisis that is built on a certain kind of complacency or consensus. So what you're telling us is um, making one think about the nature or the messiness of colonialism more generally, because you would imagine that the colonial constellation in an extractive economy is quite simple, namely that white settlers extract resources from territories that were formerly possessed by indigenous people to their own benefit and to the disadvantage of indigenous actors. But the situation you describe now when you take the environmental degradation and destruction into account is that not only are the indigenous um, inhabitants of these regions disadvantaged, but also the white settlers who are perpetuating extraction. And then you bring affect in as a way to come to terms with this seemingly paradoxical constellation. So when you say that, does that mean that there is a certain affective attachment to this kind of extractive economy from the side of the settlers that somehow lets them continue with it, although it hurts them? Yeah, you could say that. I wouldn't want to focus only on that analytic framework without also taking into account um, the political economy. A country like Argentina is located in the global south, and Argentina is really a soy state, and its welfare system also depends on the income generated by this toxic agribusiness. So it is also more complex than that. But yes, I would definitely say that these affective attachments do 
help foster the continuity of these systems insofar as it placates people. If they were to rise up and create a social movement against this system, would the system be overturned? That's also hard to say because when you have that many interests, both conservative people but also progressive people who believe in a welfare state and who in a way are willing to turn a blind eye to the the dark story behind the welfare state that has been providing certain basic services to, to poor people in Argentina. Not nearly enough, really the bare minimum, just enough to keep people hanging on. But you are going to generate a kind of broad-based consensus that is hard to overturn. And then if, you know, what would replace that? If you look at the case of Paraguay, there were a lot of political activists who were fighting against soy. Soy kills was a huge refrain amongst these activists. And then something magical and unexpected happened, which is that these people ended up under a left-wing government in power. Now they were able to create policies. But what ended up coming to light is that the business conglomerates had more power than, than a local um, global south state. The state could make whatever policy they wanted, but they weren't powerful enough to really turn away these abusive agro-industries. So it is, it is important also when we think about environmental racism to also take into account the global distribution of economic power that's at stake here. We see this with the fact that these chemical companies are owned by European and North American conglomerates and multinationals, uh, such as Monsanto, which is now owned by Bayer. Monsanto is the biggest producer of glyphosate in the world. Bayer is a German company. Another German company that, that we might have heard of is BASF. You as a German might know how to pronounce this better than me. Excellent. And there's also Syngenta. It's a Swiss company that was bought by ChemChina, but uh, it, that's under dispute. But then there, there's also North American companies like Cargill, which is actually, that's a, that's a fantastic example, a har- horrible example of the continuity of the logics of racial capitalism, enslavement, and, um, and colonialism. They were apparently not just exploiting. It wasn't just a scandal of child labor, but even enslavement in the Côte d'Ivoire on cocoa plantations. They're responsible for driving deforestation as well, and not only in South America, but also in Indonesia. So in South America, we have the soy uh, situation, the soy boom. In Indonesia, it would be palm. Uh, That's also big in Brazil, um, a lot of places in the world. So these divisions of labor are also important to note. Here in Germany, we're very comfortable talking about how, you know, separating out our, our waste into, uh, into different recycling bins. But we should also think about how we're investing in deforestation and toxicity that mainly affects not us because we're not the ones covered in glyphosate, but, but people in the global south. So the way you describe it, it uh, seems to be impossible to understand these dynamics, even the effective dynamics between white settlers and their farms and their land before the background of sentiments of, you talked about a colonial frontier of farming, uh, without taking into account the the global scale of these um, economic exchanges. I mean, isn't that a very strange thing to wrap your head around, that you have very localized feelings of attachment to land, but they seem to be fueled 
by economic cycles that are even global. That is also my question about how to understand colonialism. It seems to be global and very local, even felt uh, on a micro level at the same time. Yeah, for sure. I think it actually an affective framework can, can help us see the forest for the trees, put the local and the global in analytic relationship with each other in a more powerful way, um, in a way that's easier to sort of understand at a psychological level and also at a macro level. So do you think then that a perspective on affect can help to approach the question that I posed in the beginning a little more fully? Why does the world um, stick to an economic system that is destroying the planet? Ah, oh, that's a really big question. I think it can. Yeah, I think it can. The first thing that comes to mind for me when I when I hear this question is the example that I that I told you about with these settler descendants who stick to the the very thing that actually is hurting them. My suspicion is that the more acute these crises become, the more desperately people try to latch on to older imaginaries that give them a sense of security in their identity and their placemaking and and who they think that they are. They need their they they need to get their stability uh, from from that, and you also find that in times of more limited resources, their r rates of conflict can also rise. Conflict over over limited resources. Unfortunately, we might see more of this rather than less of it as climate change and the climate crisis uh, progresses. Are these white supremacist movements and this, this forceful di display of colonial sentiments that we see now in very different um, countries under very different guises, when you, when you take affect into account, actually the result of these traditional views not being on the rise and dominant, but in a way under threat. And that is why they are so forcefully brought to the fore. I think you could say that. I mean, I mean, one kind of more classic way of looking at it is that this is a result of a kind of post-Fordist economy that people who used to work in certain kind of industries that have now been replaced by more advanced technologies, people who are, you know, farmers who are now replaced by machines, these people might be more likely to cling to certain a certain kind of identity in a way that reveals a kind of strong affective attachment. And in general, I think crises, whether they're economic crises or environmental crises, can tend to bring out these kinds of identitarian affective attachments. In a racialized context, this could manifest along racialized lines um, and colonial lines. When you describe all these phenomena focusing on affect, taking affect into account, which basically means that a certain part of the story is how people in the end relate to other people, relate to land, relate to the environment in specific ways, in destructive ways. Does that also mean that there is a potentiality, there is a hope that people could also relate differently to each other, to land, to the environment, to animals? Affect, I think, um, on the one hand, can help us understand 
the success of certain regimes of environmental destruction. If you look at the Green Revolution during the Cold War, we saw the rise of this phrase, feeding the world, right? Um, we're creating new technological innovations to help feed the world. And some Global South critics of this movement said that they're, you know, you have this framework of care, we're taking care, we're helping farm. You see this rhetoric today as well in what's sometimes called the new green revolution. We're trying to help feed the world, help farmers who need, who need our help help them progress, help them. So there's almost like a um, developmental, a developmentalist kind of framework, meaning of creating economic development in quote unquote underdeveloped societies. And really this has been criticized as being a form of this thing that's being presented in the guise of care is actually a way of destroying local people's food sovereignty. And this also can increase affective attachments to previous ways of life um, that might not be understood along the lines of white supremacy in those particular contexts. If we think of, you know, India, um, for example. On the other hand, I think that affect can be, first of all, useful for understanding the lived experience of environmental racism. It can give us a vocabulary for explaining, for example, affects of loss in relationship to place which help us understand both the rise of certain right-wing populist movements, but also the way the people who are most affected, racialized populations in particular, and people who, are, who live under colonialism or who are in post-colonial societies that still live with the structures of colonialism, how these people carry the affective weight of these phenomena in their bodies, um, in the toxicity of their bodies. What does it mean from a Black Lives Matter perspective, also in the US, to walk around with a body that is filled with matter that is poisonous? But then another really, I think, um, interesting perspective is what was actually quite an uplifting case was with the Dakota Access Pipeline in 2016, there was a huge protest before Trump got elected. And there was an amazing social movement that brought together indigenous people, First Nation people, not only from North America, but also South America and also other parts of the world to protest this extractive industry. And for them, it was important to evoke that this was a question of sovereignty and it was a question of respect for the ancestors. I think that affect is actually a really interesting tool for measuring the unequal distribution of environmental destruction, the way a sense of loss and grief for deforested space that is considered kin is really important to, to look at and you can use affect to focus on these kinds of losses that include land title, but that are not reducible to that without going into a cultural mode that depoliticizes the question. Tamar, thank you very much. Thank you, Jonas.